Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 201 with Jennifer Moss. Jen is sharing how to build psychological fitness so you can enjoy work all the more. You'll walk away learning one, research insights into what impacts happiness at work. Two, the critical ingredient called the granddaddy of happiness. And three, two-minute exercises that slash stress and enhance your effectiveness. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced here, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep201. While you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, I hope you check out some of our handy resources. One of my faves, now that we've got over 200, that's fun to say, hundreds of episodes, all done and transcribed. If you click the magnifying glass in the search navigation bar, you can search the full text of every one of those transcripts. So if you have a challenge that you're dealing with, maybe we've talked about it before, or if you recall a key word or phrase a previous guest said, but don't recall the thrust of how brilliant they were, well, you can pull it up quite rapidly right there by clicking the magnifying glass in the search navigation bar of awesomeatyourjob.com. Now here's Jen's story. Honored as the 2016 Canadian Business Innovator of the Year, Jennifer Moss and her groundbreaking work on the power of happiness are transforming hundreds of schools and companies. Moss is the co-founder of Plasticity Labs, a tech company that provides organizations with the tools to tap into employees' sentiment and increase workplace happiness. Moss is the author of Unlocking Happiness at Work and also the co-founder of The Hero Generation a nonprofit that is implementing Moss's gratitude-based hero model in schools with the aim of decreasing teacher and student stress and increasing well-being and performance. Now, here's Jen. Jen, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thank you. I'm really excited to have this conversation today. Well, I was so intrigued in reading up about you a little bit. You have a tale of a miracle, and I love miracles. So could you tell us sort of the story behind your husband having multiple serious diseases at once and having a recovery? Yeah, it has been uh, a catalyst. And some people say that, uh, you know, that these moments define us. And for us, it certainly did. It was uh, 2009 and my husband, as you mentioned, became very ill with uh, West Nile, swine flu, and then post-viral illness, Guillain-Barre syndrome, all at once. And it made, um, you know, made his, essentially his immune system shut down and he became acutely paralyzed and, uh, and rushed to the hospital. The thing with this whole story, which makes it interesting, is that, not that it isn't interesting already, but that he was a professional athlete and has actually won, uh, been in world championships championships in two uh, professional sports. He had just come off of um, winning the gold medal for the World Cup in lacrosse, obviously a very wow. healthy, you know, high-performing athlete. And then to be all of a sudden in the hospital, paralyzed, um, was terrifying for, for us. We had a child already, two and a half years old, and we were pregnant. We were only around eight weeks away from having our second. So you can imagine the the fear. And uh, and so the 
the doctors said that, um, you know, that they would try this test and gave him essentially an immune reboot with the, the medicine and, and the therapy that they provided him. And it worked. He was, um, he was okay, uh, but, and he would live, but they said he might not walk again. So then there's this next stage of figuring out how you're going to handle news like that. And, uh, and so that was, that was pretty challenging. Jim, because uh, I think he had high levels of psychological fitness after years of learning how to deal with wins and losses and rebounding very quickly. And, and the mentality of an athlete is to be able to handle stress and come back to win and, and look for ways to win. They have really high hope. They create pathways to success. And his brain just immediately said, well, I'm alive. I get to be a father to my children and a husband. I'm only going to look at this as, uh, as a, an opportunity to be better at whatever I'm going to do with life, whether I can walk again or not. He reached out to everyone he could and asked them to give uh, him some tips on how to deal with this emotionally. And everyone kept saying, gratitude, just be grateful. Just Mm. focus on gratitude and practice it. And six weeks later, he walked out of the hospital and uh, he was assisted by his two and a half year old boy's hand. And he was later back at the hospital only a few weeks later to deliver our second child with me. So he, he took that, we took that learning and it translated, you know, flash forward seven years now it's been, and it's created a life of really focusing on being positive and, and teaching people about post-traumatic growth and stress and how we can overcome massive, massive challenges in our life, but still be very successful. Oh, Jen, that is so powerful. Thanks for sharing. And usually that's just the icebreaker question. So we're in for a lot here. <laughs> That's great. Oh, man. So, well, that's so great to hear. So great to hear that family is happy and healthy and well and and things are going smoothly and that you've picked up some learnings here, which sound like they apply very much to what your company and your book is all about. Could you give us sort of the real quick briefing on Plasticity Labs there? We say we're accidental entrepreneurs and really it was because of this catalyst moment in our lives where we decided, okay, let's figure out how to help people to develop the skills, to to be able to deal with trauma. We learned that a majority of us, three quarters of us are going to go through a traumatic event similar to what Jim went through, something pretty big, not just, you know, we lock the keys in the car moments, but true issues of, of um, challenge in our lives. And so we wanted to help people build the psychological skills to handle those, um, almost like training for a marathon. We created this concept, this platform based in neuroplasticity to, you know, to practice every day, these daily habits and reinforce these habits so that we can build the psychological fitness to handle life stress. And uh, so plasticity was born out of that. And that's really what it is, a platform to be able to build those skills. And we provide you measurement and data around your own development, kind of like a Fitbit for your um, emotional intelligence. And, um, and then we, we, we encourage you to start thinking offline too about how you're reacting to people, um, you know, in the, in the present and teaching about mindfulness and meditation and gratitude and how to be more empathetic. And, uh, and it's translating inside the workplace and in people's lives as well. That's so intriguing. And so when you say it's like a Fitbit, can you sort of lay out a little bit, how does this data collection work exactly? Well, what we do is within the uh, platform, it's both, you know, it's 
anywhere that you can access internet essentially. So it's a, it's a SaaS based um, platform, but, um, and it's based in the cloud as well. But what you do is you're sharing uh, with yourself Uh, You answer questions about your own happiness and your own mood and how it's impacting your stress, how it's impacting your health. And you communicate that uh, inside the technology, whether on your mobile phone or um, um, on your laptop every day if you're in the workplace. And it starts to reflect back to you. What are the things that are creating those stresses? What are the things that are um, encouraging you to be happier? And kind of guides you with training and learning and development to go further in the direction and the strategies that make you feel better and are happier and reducing stress and move you away from the things that are uh, sort of impeding your chances of being um, more resilient or more empathetic or more optimistic and creating the outcome of happiness. Uh, happiness has sort of got this bad brand in that people don't know how to understand it. I look at it more like fog that it's not to attain or hold on to. It's more about working on your emotional intelligence so that when happiness is in front of you, you can actually recognize it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, so very intriguing. And so then is that the big idea behind your book, Unlocking Happiness at Work, or how would you articulate that? So Unlocking Happiness at Work, yes, was a byproduct. Actually, it was a byproduct of me <laughs> responding to a article on Harvard Business Review that really frustrated me. People were saying, you know, I'm against happiness. Like, how, how, could, you be, how could you be against happiness? And, and frustrated that employers were caring about happiness. You know, workplace is just supposed to be nine to five, five days a week, and then you live for the weekends. And we spend 90,000 hours of our lifetime at work. So when the majority of your time is spent at something that could make you unhappy all the time, shouldn't your employers care about trying to find ways to improve that? And so I wrote this sort of scathing rebuttal on Harvard Business Review about why that's a ridiculous notion and that employers that are trying to improve your happiness at work aren't asking you to start, you know, hugging it out around Excel spreadsheets or constantly, you know, in a state of delight um, and inauthentic happiness. They're actually just trying to help you handle stress or handle negativity or, you know, reduce the amount of gossip that makes you feel stressed to go into the the lunchroom. It reduces your ability to create relationships and friendships, which add 10 years to your lifespan. So these are all the things that we try to, you know, get people to think about when it comes to happiness and get leaders to feel like it's not disingenuous for them to care. And out of that book uh, or out of that article, my publisher reached out and said, I think you should write a, a bit of a longer form book on this topic because leaders really do need to understand that it's okay to talk about happiness, but also map it to profitability and understand that conscious capitalists or or um, compassionate capitalists actually increase their profit, profitability, their engagement, all of those outcomes that they're looking for that the CEO and the CFO care about if they look at the, the human aspect first, if they care about these upstream impacts um, first, because it will create a downstream effect, a positive effect on all those other um, components that leaders care about. It makes sense. And I totally buy that when it comes to just discretionary or voluntary effort, how much employees are willing to 
put themselves out there just of their own volition when it's not required or when it comes to attrition and turnover and all the costs associated with learning what you need to know again to do the job and and being able to have good ideas and share those good ideas freely and have those get put into action. I could see that there's so many pathways or mechanisms by which happiness turns into bigger results for the company. So I'm already sold. So I'd like to jump right in then. So you've collected a lot of data. I'd like to hear, you know, what are some of your most compelling insights that you have gathered from your research for the book and for the company and all the data you're collecting from individual employees? Well, we have been very lucky in that we brought PhDs of researchers in social and positive psychology, organizational behavior into the discussion really early on into developing the the platform because we wanted to make it evidence-based and research-based. So everything that we do, we have research opt-ins and uh, that helps us to really analyze it in aggregate, obviously anonymously, figure out what it does, what happiness and emotional intelligence psychological fitness training does to performance. And so now we've been able to determine that, for example, the fall is the most unhappiest time for Mm. people. And a big part of that, we would think winter, right? Um, For us in Canada, for sure. But fall is a time of really um, serious change. And so we dug deeper into that and found that it's actually this back to school time and this really deeply ingrained feeling about what that means for change and that stress around, um, you know, change for ourselves as a young person. But then as a parent, it also means a complete reboot after being, you know, at home, not making lunches over the summer and all those things that you get kind of a, a eight week break from, it just shifts. And so fall is a really difficult time for people. And we have, we can create now in the workplace, we can create mechanisms to figure out how to, you know, boost moods during that time frame. We also learned that uh, for every inch of snow, that uh, inch of snow that we get on, um, <laughs> on the ground, it can decrease a person's happiness by 0.5 um, points. So there's these really interesting things that we've learned that seem sort of, you know, banal. But if you start to think about flexible hours, for example, and know that in the depths of winter in certain parts of the world, if that, you know, if you can have some uh, breaks around uh, timelines of when people should be working, or if it means that they're going to decrease their happiness by a certain percentage based on the snowfall, we can start to actually look at big data like weather and create predictions around that. Um, And data exchange and other really cool uh, technologies that allow us to analyze how happiness is impacted by those things. We also know that uh, high hope and hero traits, hope, efficacy, resilience, optimism. We also look at gratitude, mindfulness, and empathy. The higher the individual is in are, are in in those traits, they have a 30% likely um, likelihood of um, improving their performance and engagement at work. So you can start to ask questions around hopefulness or efficacy or gratitude in your hiring profile and understand where a person that might require more resilience. Say, for example, when we've worked with call centers, we understand you need to be able to bounce back after a call faster. You could hire people based on resilience versus just on skills. So these are all, you know, these are a very sort of dumbed down, fast uh, description of some of the data we've been able to gather. But all of these things play into these, the small and big data plays into hiring practices. It, it builds your policies. It helps you to understand at an individual level what every 
person needs versus creating blanket programs or policies that only support 10% of your um, employee population versus the 90% that are really, you know, looking to be engaged and, and want to feel cared for. Oh, there's so much good stuff there. So first, let me just sync up on units. You mentioned for each inch of snow that drops happiness by 0.5. Now, what is the scale of the units or the means by which that's measured? So there's a hundred point scale that we measure um, and people answer on their happiness score on this hundred point scale, sometimes three to four times a day, depending on how they want to um, communicate or share how they're feeling. And it's real, again, it's all anonymized. It's just reflected back to them, but they can see, you know, through their journal that I was happy on at this you know point um, in time, but then I was also frustrated at this point in time and all that qualitative data is gathered, but that quantitative data is just mapped to, um, ha- ag- we create an aggregate score and then we map it to open data where we can see, you know, um, weather in certain uh, geographic regions. And if weather is described as, as we're correlated to happiness scores, we can see that, uh, between all of those pieces of data and we bundle them together, we can actually understand how there's a cause and uh, correlations to both. Mm-hmm. Well, so I'd like to talk about this hero model a bit in terms of, could you share with us maybe your favorite tip in terms of it being actionable and making a real big bang for your buck impact when you do it to give a boost to the hope, to the efficacy, to the resilience, to the optimism? Absolutely. One of the first places that I say to go for someone new to the concept of building their own psychological fitness uh, is go to gratitude first. And gratitude is referred to as sort of the the granddaddy or the grandmama of happiness. It actually sits sort of above it. And uh, there was some really great research that Dr. Robert Emmons uh, performed about a decade ago now in Berkeley. It might've been a bit longer. And uh, he spent some time studying gratitude and its impact on people. And he had people in these various groups write down what they were grateful for. And then he had another group write down neutral things, um, you know, statements, like I cleaned my closet this week. And, uh, and then he had some folks write what they were most pessimistic about, uh, things that bothered them that week. He called them the hassles group. And he divided these three groups up and spent 10 weeks. And once a week, they just had to answer their sort of these weekly questions and provide responses based on what group they were in. And what he saw at the end of the, this 10 week study was that people that were in the gratitude uh, group versus the hassles group, even the neutral group worked out an hour and a half more per week. They increased their amount of health. Their immune systems had improved. They were more engaged. They had, uh, they had self-reported less loneliness. They felt like they were, um, you know, feeling like they could contribute more to society. There was, um, a huge, uh, sort of, um, breakthrough around just these simple, uh, simple gratitude interventions on a weekly basis that could improve your health and your life by leaps and bounds. We've since taken that further, not just ourselves and at Plasticity Labs, but within, uh, within so much of the research community, we started to invest in learning about gratitude. And you can, you can see now that three, three, Gratitude, words of gratitude every day um, before you go to sleep can improve your sleep um, exponentially. It actually improves a whole bunch of different um, 
sales increase. If you're a person in sales, it actually, you know, improves profitability, improves engagement. It reduces procrastination. So if you're a procrastinator, if you write three grateful things down before you go to bed, you can actually reduce your procrastination, which is huge in the workplace. And uh, we also, if you're a person in a family who's interested in incorporating some of these things in their day-to-day life, we practice what made you smile today. And, uh, and working with kids, what's so interesting is that their neural hard- hardwiring is going so fast right now. It's rapidly wiring and rewiring. And if you can get young people to start to filter the way that they look at their environment by looking at what they have versus what they don't have to accomplish their goals or to feel good or to succeed in life, it can can change them and change their neural wiring so that they are grateful versus people that practice gratitude. And that is very different. It's a it's like changing your brain as fluency, like learning a language. For example, when you start to practice learning French, you begin by translating it from whatever common language you know, your English to French, for example. But at a certain point, your brain starts to just communicate in French and understand in French. It's the same process for practicing gratitude. You practice it over time. It actually becomes something that you subconsciously uh, act out versus having to cognitively translate an action and then behave with gratitude. It's really interesting. And so if you can start with young people very early on and get them to explain what made them smile today at school or or in their day and share that every night at dinner time or at least five days a week, they will become grateful adults. Well, that's excellent. So then let's zero in on the action step. So it's specifically writing down or verbalizing three things we're grateful for, you know, that day or the last 24 hours. Is that how it's framed? Yes. Three things every morning before you start your day at work or three things before you go to bed at night. But it's the before you go to bed at night that gives you the sleep boost. It tends to support your sleeping. However, it's still going to start to develop your own, you know, neural hardwiring anyway. So, um, so it doesn't matter either way. It's sometimes it's good just to have a mindful moment before you start um, your day. And that can be through gratitude or, or just two minutes of breathing. But before bed, if you can practice gratitude, you tend to think about um, you sleep better because you're thinking more positive. You're priming your brain to have positive ideas or thoughts or dreams um, while you're asleep. Okay. That's excellent. Well, can you hear, what's this two minutes of breathing action we should be taking here? So you can do two minutes of mindful breathing. Obviously, meditation is really a great tool. And I talk about it as well as being something to to perfect. But we do talk quite frequently, I think, in the workplace, there's this fear around, you know, how do I take 20 minutes away? And how do I find that private space with the world of open offices? It's not really easy. And it's, it's, it's a difficult... Um, it's, I think it's a difficult request to get people to understand that they can adopt it, even though it's easier than people think. But what my job is, is to just get people sort of to, to start the concept and they can evolve to developing better meditation practices or time spent, um, you know, on their own being mindful. But if you even just take two minutes of breathing in and out, in through your nose, out through your mouth, two, out through your mouth, two minutes to the, every day to start your day or even do it in a time of stress or post uh, maybe a difficult conversation with someone or before you go into a meeting where you're going to be with someone that you know is challenging. If you can 
take that two minutes, it will help you reset and be more empathetic. Uh, another exercise before going into a meeting or getting on a call with someone that is stressful, if you can do an empathy exercise, which is uh, getting you to imagine what that person, where that person is coming to you from. And for leaders, it's really important because when people come into your office, they're usually there for a reason, especially if you're a manager or if you're a CEO where someone's taken a while to make sure that they get your time. They're there for a reason. And it's either that they're very excited about something and they're emotionally driven by uh, a topic or an idea that they want to share. So they're coming to you with a set of beliefs and they're trying to you know, influence you or they're coming to you angry or sad or stressed or dealing with something that they want to get off their chest. So for a leader to be able to imagine where is this person coming to me from and meeting them where they're at is hugely effective for leaders. If they can be empathetic, then they can gauge what the expectation of that person is. And that helps them to better relate, to better solve their problems and get closer to a solution or even just help them to, to be able to um, figure out how they can move forward with an idea. Sometimes CEOs can't necessarily commit to something. So they have to find effective ways of influencing decisions. Um, and that sometimes means helping person a person understand why they have to get a no. Mm-hmm. I just want to make sure we're clear on this two-minute breathing piece. So in through the nose, out through the mouth, I'm assuming belly or diaphragmatic approach as opposed to chest breathing or shoulder breathing. Is that accurate? Yes. And, and I'm not a mindfulness expert. So, I mean, for me, it's more just a, about what I've learned through the, the training that I've received through from mindfulness experts that do work for us. And you're right um, in that you really should be pushing the belly out. Um, you should be pushing out your breathing like you're actually breathing through your diaphragm versus thinking that you have to pull in um, four breaths in through your nose slowly, as deep as you can, um, as deep as you can go, even deeper than you would think, um, and try to push yourself to breathe in as deeply as you can for four breaths in and then four breaths out slowly, as slow as you can, like you said, through the diaphragm. And if you can do that for two minutes with your eyes closed, if you have your hands laid out in front of you, um, open up on your desk and take a few minutes you can even listen to some, you know, soft, calming music while you do it. If you want to put your headphones on, but just um, put your headphones on so you can alert other people that you're not to be disturbed. That also helps, especially in startups or open offices where people like to interrupt you. Headphones are this clear signal that you're busy. Um, and if you can't find an if you can't find an office to do that, you can do that at your desk, and it can really uh, change the way your brain opens up for um, you know positivity and reflection and creativity. Uh, another, uh, you know, before we get, um, go, go uh, on from another tactic, I would say that I would say that walking meetings too, or walking uh, discussions or even meditation while walking. I do a lot of meetings while I'm on uh, foot and I get on, uh, ask someone to come along with me. And that's another great way to practice your breathing and creativity and to engage creativity is to get uh, another person to go for a walk with you while you have ideation. It's also great to get on a phone call with someone that it's not necessary for you to to be writing down notes, but you can have really good ideation that way is get up and actually walk, you know, smoking or sitting is a new smoking. And uh, the amount of sitting we do is actually like smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So it's really dangerous for us to be sitting so much. So this concept of mindful breathing is really important, but even as equally as important, I would say is just moving more. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, that's a nice lineup there. Thank you. And so then 
with it comes to the two minutes of the breathing, you can have some tunes going. Do you recommend, it sounds like your mind is occupied with the counting, one, two, three, four. That sounds like plenty. <laughs> yes, it's good for enough. For my brain. <laughs> Me too. And so uh, eyes open, closed, any other little pointers? Well, I would say, yes, if you have the ability to to feel comfortable enough in closing your eyes, I think that's important. And I think um, what is most important is creating an environment, especially as a leader, where we destigmatize this concept of taking breaks or having um, time to close your eyes or be mindful or meditate. Uh, that's one of the things we can suggest to leaders um, and uh, employers is make it so that it's super comfortable, even create what we're seeing a lot in workplaces is creating mindful spaces. So a beanbag or a place where people go and you know that that's a space where we're getting a refresh. It's awesome when I see that in workplaces, a little spot for people to know that they're in protected space. And so I would encourage, even if you have in a workplace where, you know, you can set up a a desk or a special space um, for people to feel protected, that is so helpful for for you to get into that that headspace that actually is, it's going to be productive and effective for you to do that mindful breathing. Okay. Well, now I want to hear, you mentioned emotional intelligence a couple of times here. You know, I'd love to get your view. What do you see in workplaces to be among the most common gaps or missteps when it comes to folks being and applying emotional intelligence? One of the biggest issues I find is that there's an aspirational desire to be uh, a a workplace that is focused on wellness and yet it's very myopic concept of, of wellness. And so what we do is we create these places that might have, you know, support for you to go to a gym and, you know, you might have yoga or whatever you're going to have to support wellness. And yet what most uh, employers don't understand is that that physical wellness is difficult to be achieved without emotional unwellness. And that means just having uh, high or inspiration and hope and optimism. People won't tend to work out in the same way unless they have higher levels of emotional intelligence. So creating a wellness program where psychological fitness is a part of it is, is a gap I see. I also see that there is this issue of trust and employees have a hard time trusting that their employers really do care for them. And that's unfortunate. We've seen that across the board where uh, employers do want to make changes, whether it's for the right reasons or the wrong reasons, they do want to improve the happiness and health of their employees. And of course, the performance of their employees. So uh, when they when they try to make these big leaps, they have to overcome the trust issues first. And that's deeply rooted and embedded in a lot of organizations around the world right now. It feels like there's this employer-employee um, sort of silo and that it's not about working together or collaborating or being uh, connected to a shared goal. And so that has to be broken down first before you can start really working on building higher levels of emotional intelligence. And uh, for new companies, this is where they have the perfect opportunity, you know, startups or 
small businesses or organizations that are in their infancy, that is where if you can create this cultural route uh, where emotional intelligence practice and well-being and mindfulness and conscious capitalism is at the core of who you are as a value system, you create this culture that starts to move out concentrically as you scale and grow. And that's what's at the, you know, that's what's at the root of who you are, even at 200 people. When you start with a culture, and we're seeing this a lot right now with the discussions going on in Silicon Valley, where you have a culture that starts out in a sort of a negative way, or no one really cared about culture or thought about culture right at the beginning. And emotional intelligence isn't a really big part of uh, the the factoring of what's going to make you successful. That scales too. And it balloons into a very unhealthy culture that um, that is also scaled across departments and uh, a giant organization. And that's when really terrible, you know, dramatic events occur. So culture should be considered right at the beginning, emotional intelligence as part of that. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering about sort of individuals here in terms of their emotional intelligence and interfacing with their colleagues and such. What are some things you see that folks could sure benefit by doing more of? Well, Sean Aker, who is a great uh, researcher, he's also, he wrote the forward for the book, Unlocking Happiness, and he's written Happiness Advantage. He's great. And he writes about how we have closet optimists right now because there's so much negativity and we breed that inside of organizations. And so he's, you know, he's, he and I have talked about how we can kind of let closet optimists out of the closet and help them to feel like they can be more positive. And what happens inside the workplace is one person or a bunch of people start to gossip or create negative gossip and that spreads. And so what we need to be able to do is foster positive gossip. And that could mean talking about another employee, you know, quote unquote, behind their back in a positive way, or making sure that we highlight when people are doing really good things. Um, We do this fun uh, game called the smile bomb. And once, uh, you know, every so often, I suggest actually doing it once a week or once a month where you take sticky notes to uh, your favorite person's chair. That might be the unsung hero, the one that's always setting everyone up for success, but never takes the credit and covering their desk with sticky notes about what they're, what makes them awesome. And it's so simple and it's very affordable, but it's a way for people to feel cared about and recognized. And so recognition, I think, is super important for us to consider when it comes to our coworkers and, you know, trying to move away from negative gossip once it starts to become something that ruminates inside the workplace because it can be uh, pretty toxic. And then I would also say that if you can make sure that there's open dialogue and discussion around mental health uh, as a leader, as an employee, and make it so that that stigma is reduced, you actually have a more likelihood of people to have strong psychological fitness because the best, most creative organizations are the ones where you can have a really difficult conversation with your coworker, but it can be healthy and constructive and you can bounce back um, even if it is uncomfortable, but you can have conflict resolution versus conflict avoidance. And that's a big, that's a big, difficult beast for organizations to deal with is this whole concept of dealing with conflict and change. But if you create an environment where resiliency is really strong, then you can kind of overcome everything as a team. Oh, that's exciting. Well, tell me, Jen, is there anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? I would say just in general that, uh, you know, I'd like to get across to the listeners that 
it, it might seem like fluffy science and it might seem like it's, and fluffy science seems like an oxymoron in itself, but it might seem like it's one of those things that we talk about and it's all good common sense, but it's, it's unfortunate how few people actually practice these very simple things and that it's about being open to trying them and doing these simple yet that might seem silly experiments or interventions and watch how it does change your workplace and watch how it does evolve the discussion into some a place that's more positive and, and just try it. You know, I say even just try with a 30 days of gratitude intervention and every day post a sticky note on the wall, every single one of your employees st- stick a note on the wall about what makes this place great and why you come into work every day and and I watch how the culture changes and just try it and then uh, and then tell me how it turned out. Oh great, thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote something you find inspiring? Well, I love this quote. I have two. One is don't drag the U-Haul behind the hearse because mm. it's not about things in life, it's about experiences. And then I also love uh, you can have anything but not everything. So it's all about choices and priorities. Thank you. And how about a favorite book? The Book Thief is my favorite, favorite fiction book. I love that book. It's fantastic. And I also, my my favorite um, nonfiction is uh, Happiness Advantage by Sean Aker. Okay. And how about a favorite tool? Well, I have to say that I do use, um, you know, this is not a shameless plug, but I do use plasticity often. And I go through this as a process to develop my own, you know, psychological well-being. But I also really like my hair straightener. Okay. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Gotta have a hair straightener if you're a lady. (laughs) And how about a favorite habit, a personal practice of yours that helps you be effective? Well, one of the things that I love to do every day, and we talked about gratitude, but I do like to ask my kids what made them smile today. And we talked a little bit about that, but it's so cool to hear what little kids say about what makes them happy. And um, I would recommend, even if you don't have kids, to go and ask a kid what made them smile that day. And it will definitely put you in a good mood. Oh, thank you. And is there a particular nugget or piece that you share that really seems to resonate with folks? It gets them, you know, taking notes, retweeting, et cetera. Yeah, I would say that, um, I, I say this uh, again with gratitude, that gratitude is the gateway drug to happiness. And that's um, Michelle, uh, Michelle's, uh, Sean Akers, Michelle Akers um, note. And I find that a lot of people resonate with this concept of something so simple. Um, We don't need to make life more complicated that we can go back to humanity and the simple things and understanding that it's just about reflection and being positive and focusing on the good things and and just use common sense. Um, Because right now, unfortunately, common sense isn't that common and uh, we need to get back to that. Mm -hmm. And Jen, if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Well, I'm on Twitter, Jen Lee Moss, uh, but you can also go to plasticitylabs.com and check out some of our white papers. We do a lot of research around flexibility in the workplace and what matters to parents and non-parents. And um, there's tons of really awesome uh, research there that I would recommend people go and check out and read and learn and figure out if, um, if they can bring happiness into their workplace. All right. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for those seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah, I would love for people to start um, practicing gratitude. Like I said, I suggest people start focusing on their own 
um, personal development, either they start their own gratitude journal or they start their sticky note wall. And it's easy. You just need to bring in Sharpies and uh, sticky notes and find a space and, uh, and practice that. I would also say if you have a cool question of the day that gets people to refocus on the positive and prime them for the positive, that's a really great way to start dialogue. And it could just be, you know, for the next month, what made work great today or what made today great and put it on a chalkboard right on the wall and get people to start answering that question. And uh, it should prime you to be in a happier place when you're at work. Okay. Well, Jen, thank you so much for taking this time and sharing these perspectives. I wish you much happiness at work and keep on doing what you're doing. Thank you so much. It was so great to talk to you, Pete. It was a great conversation. Thank you. One of my favorite parts about this conversation with Jen is that she highlighted things that are so quick and easy to do in terms of two minutes of breathing or putting yourself in the other person's shoes or naming a few things that you're grateful for before falling asleep. And just, I really dig that how you can get a disproportionate return or huge gains by investing a little bit of time and energy into this stuff. And particularly when it's strategically placed, like just before sleep or when you're in the midst of stress or when you're about to step into an important conversation. So I think that's really cool and smart and brilliantly strategic to invest that time in these ways because, you know, how else is two minutes going to make such a huge impact? So cool stuff. Hope you're digging. If you want to check out the show notes, the transcript, the links to items that we referenced, it's at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep201. And if you haven't already, I hope to push subscribe. You'll hear from our next guest. It is Don Hutchison. And Don has the Discover Your Talent podcast and some real insight into zeroing in on what you are awesome at doing. So I hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 